the thing that I find important about this is, you know, the difference between free speech and professional speech. And if you look at the actual rules that um, put the boundaries around acceptable physician behavior, each state has a medical practice act. And there's actually legislation with provisions within the Medical Practice Act that say what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. This is the law that was put forth and legislated and signed by the governor. But what we're finding is that state medical boards aren't following or enforcing their own state medical practice acts. And so there's very, very few doctors that have been disciplined. I'm Quinta Jurassic. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 14th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've talked a lot on this show about how falsehoods about the coronavirus are spread and generated. For this episode, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with two emergency medicine physicians who have seen the practical effects of those falsehoods while treating patients over the last two years. Nick Sawyer and Taylor Nichols are two co-founders of the organization No License for Disinformation, a group that advocates for medical authorities to take disciplinary action against doctors spreading misinformation and disinformation about COVID-19. They argue that state medical boards, which grant physicians the licenses that authorize them to practice medicine, could play a more aggressive role in curbing falsehoods. Why do Nick and Taylor believe that state medical boards have fallen down on the job? What are the possibilities for more aggressive action? How does the First Amendment limit those possibilities? And how much good can the threat of discipline do in curbing medical misinformation anyway? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 14th, when doctors spread disinformation. Nick and Taylor, thank you so much for coming on. To start off, I I wanted to just ask you to tell us about your organization, No License for Disinformation. You know, what is it? Why did you found it? Um, And just to make things easier for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself before you speak so they can put a name to the voice. Um, Sure, yeah. Um, My name is Nick Sawyer. I'm an emergency medicine physician in Sacramento, California. And um, in the very beginning of the pandemic, I volunteered to go to Elmhurst Hospital for two weeks. Um, This was in the end of April, um, right after the initial wave had hit, and Elmhurst Hospital was completely full. Um, I volunteered on a COVID-19 ward with all critically ill patients, and that sort of gave me a unique perspective early on um, into how uh, this this new novel virus actually could um, impact people. And there was already some disinformation going on at that time. So uh, what we did was, um, as this disinformation was continuing to spread, it started with um, downplaying of the virus, uh, people pushing for opening of this, you know, the lockdown, stay at home orders. Um, We started to notice that the different organizations uh, within medicine, not only within organized medicine, um, AMA, the American Board of Medical Specialties, et cetera. And the state medical boards um, weren't saying anything about this. And there's this idea that there's this self-regulation of physicians in medicine. Um, But none of that was occurring. And at the same time, you know, Taylor, who's also an emergency physician, and myself are seeing some pretty horrific things in our own hospitals. And um, so we we sort of were, were waiting for somebody to step up to protect the institutions that were being attacked. 
And um, after a while, and that didn't happen, we decided to uh, create no license for disinformation with the main idea being that we have um, people sending complaints to their state medical boards about physicians who are spreading disinformation with the intent to sort of overwhelm them and, and make them act. And I'm Taylor Nichols. I'm also an emergency medicine physician um, in Northern California. Uh, and Nick and I have been friends for a while. Um, Nick was my fellowship director at UC Davis um, in the health policy and advocacy fellowship at the time that um, COVID started um, at the beginning of the pandemic. We actually had the first known case of community transmission at UC Davis Hospital. Um, and so we really saw this from the beginning, from the ground floor, and we saw what was happening to patients. Um, and so we were understandably, I think, concerned at the amount of misinformation that was being spread, uh, which, which can certainly happen when you have sort of a new set of circumstances that don't have an adequate amount of information around them. Um, but when people were spreading just outright lies and clear political propaganda, it became problematic. And so when the Federation of State Medical Boards issued their statement, we sort of recognized a chance to, to act and to try to hold the medical boards uh, to account to then hold physicians accountable for spreading misinformation and disinformation around COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines. Um, because as Nick said, you know, we aren't the arbiters of truth as it were. Um, we just wanted to make sure that we did what we could to try to address what we saw as a very important issue um, and make sure that we tried to have physicians held accountable because we feel that our licenses matter, our board certifications matter, and that people who are intentionally spreading misinformation were sort of breaching uh, a violation of, of, of ethics and um, intentionally breaking trust in the physician-patient relationship, which is critically important for our, for our role, for our job. Um, and so we, we were hoping that um, we would be able to, you know, address this, this critically important issue. And part of that, by reporting misinformation and disinformation that we saw, we know medical boards don't have unlimited resources. They don't have people who are um, able to search the internet and see what people are saying. And so they rely on people filing reports. And so part of that was um, on our website, you can search a physician's license and file a report right there. So creating a centralized sort of um, uh, place where you can where you can do that and you can file those reports was something that we felt was important. Really appre appreciate you dropping the name of the podcast in there. That was very smooth, Taylor. Thank you. Um, and we definitely want to come back to the role of, of medical boards, obviously. But before we do, I think one of the things that's really critically important about the work that you do is that you're actually, as you said, practitioners on the ground and you saw it from the start. And so much of the conversation about disinformation is often very abstract. You know, we hear about it in the newspapers and things like that um, and talk about the spread of it online. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be grateful if you can talk a little bit about 
you know, you've seen the concrete impacts of it, um, what you've seen and how it hits on the front line. The real world consequence of these physicians who are out there who are spreading conspiracy theories and disinformation is um, ultimately a mistrust of the system um, and people not getting vaccinated and the consequences of that. So I can give you a few examples. One is um, a, it's probably the, the worst, the worst um, thing that I had happened during the pandemic was we had a, um, a young man in his twenties and you wouldn't know that this, this guy had an underlying medical condition if you had seen him walking down the street, but um, he had sickle cell and he was unvaccinated. He was brought in, his oxygen was 60% and he looked like he was drowning. He was in acute distress and um, we did everything we could um, to, to resuscitate him, but he died under my care in the emergency department that day. And, um, you know, that the, when you have a person in their twenties die underneath your care, that's not something that doctors just shake off, you know, and just move on to the next patient who has a cough or a cold. That's a really devastating thing to have happen for everybody on the team from the physicians to the nurses, to the techs who are doing continuous CPR, um, to the respiratory therapist who is assisting with intubation. Um, it's, it's really tragic and it really hits hard. Um, in addition to that, the mistrust leads to um, our care of the patients. Um, I had a patient who um, absolutely refused to allow us to do a COVID test with a nasal swab because this patient said that we had, uh, we were going to infect him with COVID because there was COVID on the tip of the swab, which prevented us from moving on and treating his breathing problem because we didn't know if he had COVID or not. Um, another thing was um, a woman in her 70s who came in and uh, we diagnosed her with COVID and told her that and she refused to believe it. She said, I, I don't have COVID, I have the flu. And um, I, you know, I sat down and I was trying to talk to her and she said, you know, she started to to go down this familiar pathway that I'd heard from the doctors or spreading disinformation saying, well, if I have COVID, you gave it to me and you gave it to me because you want to make money off of me. And, um, I, uh, you know, I just want to get ivermectin and I, she had a, uh, critical lab value her sodium was below, was very low. And I tried to talk her into staying, you know, I, and tell her, I don't get any, you know, I, I, I'm a salaried physician. What, what I do doesn't make a difference. Um, but she refused to believe me and she signed out against medical advice and left the hospital. So it's, um, yeah, it, there's also this tension that um, I feel with some patients when I ask them about their vaccination status, um, that definitely interferes with you know, the rapid um, therapeutic relationship that we develop with patients, because these patients come in and we've never met them before. You know, they're not our patients. We're everybody's doctor. Um, and if we start to talk about COVID or COVID vaccines, sometimes it can get contentious because of the type of disinformation that's being spread is um, it, it, it's got a lot of conspiracy theories in it that make it look as if we are either pro profiting off of these patients' illnesses and or actually intentionally trying to harm them. And so you could only imagine that if that is your worldview and you believe in these conspiracy theories, that when you go to see doctors, you're going to have this inherent mistrust 
but they're coming to see us anyhow, but they're, they're skeptical and they're, they're standoffish. Um, so it's been, it's been really challenging. And to that point, um, you know, as emergency medicine physicians, I only have a limited amount of time to establish rapport with a patient. Um, we only have, you know, anywhere from, from just a few minutes to maybe a couple hours in the department to see them. But establishing that trust is really done within the first five minutes of the encounter. And so it's really hard to be able to um, develop that relationship when you already come from an antagonistic position, like when the patients already don't trust you because of the information that they've been hearing. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when we didn't have vaccines, when we didn't even know what good treatment options we had, it was really scary. And people were getting incredibly sick um, and dying. And that was really hard to bear witness to without, you know, with this feeling of helplessness that we, we couldn't really help them that much. And so I understand the idea of wanting to believe in something that could be a cure or could be a treatment or just that to sort of bury your head in the sand and believe that it doesn't exist because it is so difficult to wrap your head around. Um, but that becomes so problematic when you have scientists and physicians spreading the misinformation and disinformation, it becomes stickier. Um, it makes it harder to debunk because these are supposed credentialed experts and people can hold, you know, your credentials against theirs and say, well, who's right. Um, but we have to accept that, you know, the, the science and the studies and our expert consensus helps drive us forward, not uh, conspiracy theories. And so when we did get vaccines and it felt like, okay, we have something, um, it was so disheartening to see so much distrust of vaccines, so much distrust of physicians for distributing vaccines. Um, even just within the last week, I've had a patient refuse to wear a mask and refuse to get a COVID swab because he said that COVID was not real. It was a hoax. Um, and we needed to transfer him to a higher level of care. And I told him that, you know, if you won't wear a mask and you won't get this test, they're, they're not gonna, we're not going to be able to transfer you and you're going to still need to wear the mask in the other hospital. And he was, he just said, you know what, I'm fine. I'm going to leave. I, I don't want to do this. Um, and so he signed himself out against medical advice, despite multiple conversations with myself and other physicians who were involved in his care. Um, and it's just so disheartening to not be able to provide the best care that you can to patients because they have so much distrust that you know stems from physicians spreading misinformation and disinformation, um, which is why this issue is so critically important to us um, because we see the impacts still directly um, really harming people. Thank you for, for sharing those stories. I mean, I think listeners are probably familiar. We obviously talk a lot about 
misinformation. We've talked a lot about COVID misinformation on the show, but hearing the way that it you know manifests in, in your work is really powerful. I do want to make sure before we go any further that we kind of lay some of the groundwork for listeners in terms of how the, the wonderful world of medical licensing and certification works, because it can be maybe difficult for to untangle um, for people outside the profession. So can you just walk me through, uh, whichever of you would like to, the role of state medical boards, of organizations that provide certification, and also of uh, the group that you mentioned at the beginning, the Federation of State Medical Boards? Every physician has to be licensed to practice medicine. And those licenses are by state. So we're both in California. California has its own medical board, which gives licenses and also disciplines physicians um, for malpractice, for unprofessional conduct, et cetera. Um, The Federation of State Medical Boards uh, sort of is the umbrella body over all of those individual state medical boards. Now, the enforcement uh, enforcement powers, as it were, are within the state medical boards. The Federation of State Medical Boards sort of can help set the standards and guidelines for individual medical boards, but they don't have any like enforcement power over individual licenses, and they don't grant licenses on a federal level. So those licenses are state level. And then the other part is board certification. So within your specialty, there's a board certifying body that... You know, you do exams, you do exams to get a state medical license, and then you do exams to pass your board certification. And those exams are put on by those specialty organizations. So for us, we're both emergency medicine physicians. So our board certifying body is the American Board of Emergency Medicine, or ABEM. Um, There's also the American Board of Internal Medicine and of Pediatrics, et cetera. Um, So those board certifying bodies provide the certification that you are, you know, competent within that particular specialty within that field. Um, And that is applicable sort of on a nationwide level. And the, so the role of the the Federation of State Medical Boards, which I'm just going to refer to by the acronym because it's a mouthful. Um, So the, the FSMB came out with this really interesting statement in July of 2021 announcing, and I'm quoting from the statement here, that, and I quote, uh, physicians who generate and spread COVID-19 vaccine misinformation or disinformation are risking disciplinary action by state medical boards, including the suspension or revocation of their medical license. Walk us through the significance of this. That that statement seems to have been received, as far as I can tell, as, as kind of a, a, a big deal. Um, did you understand it as such, and what, what effect did it have? So this was um, uh, the first time uh, in the pandemic that any part of um, organized medicine had put a statement out like that. And prior to that, um, you know, Taylor and I, and uh, uh, other people were talking and wondering where the leadership was, where the institutions were uh, to step up on this. And uh, that didn't come out until July of 2021. And so for that entire period of time, this disinformation apparatus of doctors, um, very, very well-funded, very, very well-coordinated, are spreading disinformation on traditional media, digital media. They're holding uh, in-person rallies, 
Um, and they're also being amplified by um, major news networks like um, Fox News. And <clears throat> when the Federation of State Medical Boards, FSMB, released this statement, we were actually, I was thrilled by it. And um, I immediately called uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards and I sent them uh, an email. And I did the same with the California Medical Board. And after not hearing back from them, um, no word at all whatsoever from either institution, is when we really started to take seriously the idea of um, starting a, uh, an organization. Um, because it was about uh, September after that, after that statement came out in July, when we started to realize nothing's happening. They put out this really outstanding statement. It was well-written. Um, it referred specifically to the COVID-19 vaccines, which, um, you know, the disinformation being spread about them um, is verifiably false and ridiculous, like um, that the vaccines are killing more people than covid or they contain microchips that are used to track and trace and measure Americans in order for government to control their minds, um, so on and so forth. And um, because nothing was being done at that point, we decided, you know, we're seeing too much. Um, this is decimating our um, workforce. It's causing a lot of stress, unneeded stress on top of the pandemic itself. And so we're going to try and actually get the medical boards um, to, to, to pay attention by directing people to the medical boards to um, submit their complaints about what they're seeing out in the hospitals. So in terms of um, how many doctors have been disciplined for, you know, spreading this kind of disinformation over the course of the pandemic, do we know uh, what the track record is here? Yeah, it's... Um, it's very few, actually, who actually have been disciplined for spreading disinformation. Um, and it's extraordinarily dangerous because um, so many people believe this disinformation and act upon that. The, the few physicians who have been disciplined have been disciplined for other reasons. Um, like, for example, um, not getting full consent when they prescribe ivermectin to a patient. They found other reasons to discipline a few doctors, but certainly none of the... Um, doctors who are uh, disseminating the most dangerous disinformation in the various, uh, you know, amplified ways on social media and in the media ecosystem. And um, the reason this is, is because um, this is a matter of speech and we're getting into an issue of what is um, considered free speech. The thing that I find um, uh, important about this but we've had various opinions from various legal scholars who study this is, you know, the difference between free speech and professional speech. And if you look at the actual rules that um, put the boundaries around acceptable uh, physician behavior, that's actually codified into law. Um, each state has a medical practice act and there's actually legislation with provisions within the medical practice act that say what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And what's really interesting to me is um, we've gone through the California Medical Practice Act, and there are actually multiple provisions within the California Medical Practice Act that say that um, it's unacceptable to um, basically spread disinformation. Um, I'm looking at one right now. It just says the board shall take action against any licensee who is charged with unprofessional conduct 
uh, and one of the um, uh, subsections defining unprofessional conduct is the commission of any act involving dishonesty or corruption that is substantially related to the qualifications, functions, or duties of a physician and surgeon. So uh, you know, this is the law that was put forth and you know, legislated and signed by the governor. Um, but what we're finding is that state medical boards aren't following or enforcing their own state medical um, practice acts. Um, and so because of that, and I can't, I can't tell you why this is happening, but there are rules in place that, um, they could, in, that they could enforce, but they're not doing so. And so there's very, very few doctors that have been, um, disciplined. And Nick, to that point, um, I just wanted to add that the Federation of State Medical Boards, uh, issued a report in April of this year, um, and one of their points in, in their report uh, under state medical boards, number three, when adjudicating cases regarding misinformation and disinformation, state medical boards are encouraged to consider the full array of authorized grounds for disciplinary action in their Medical Practice Act. So to that point specifically about the fact that the Medical Practice Acts already define this as a problem. They already define unprofessional conduct, lying, um, and and effectively what we've seen a lot of these cases also include, you know, telehealth visits where they sell ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and that sort of thing, which could be considered corruption. And that's corruption is already an issue that uh, would warrant disciplinary action under the Medical Practice Acts. So. The Medical Practice Acts do already define this, and they already grant the, the medical boards the authority to act. Um, but we, we just haven't seen that much um, action on the, on the parts of the, the state medical boards for this. So I think those are all really important points. And there are, you know, tricky First Amendment questions here. But before, you know, or we may get to discuss those, but I, I do want to set those aside just a little bit first to get some more background, because I think what underlies that First Amendment anxiety is this question that exists on both sides of politics. You know, we hear this when any um, disinformation regulation is propo proposed, that there's this slippery slope concern and that you are interfering with the knowledge production process if you say that certain claims aren't uh, are unsayable and that we should leave it to the marketplace of ideas, yada, yada, yada. Now, uh, what I want to ask is for those outside the medical profession, can you talk a little bit about how medical knowledge gets created and disseminated, particularly in you know the context of something like a pandemic where it's really developing very, very quickly? Um, and there is a lot that's unknown to start off with, but then you know certain things uh, solidify into facts. How does that work? How do things get established as medical fact? And how does the profession uh, start to know about that and so that they can be held to account for, for not knowing it or contradicting it? Yeah, that's, a, that's an outstanding question. Um, and it really goes to uh, the question that is often um, put forth by the physicians who spread the most disinformation. And they set out this challenge. And the challenge is, who decides what disinformation is? And the answer to that lies in, um, honestly, I, I was, it, what made it really clear to me is a book by Jonathan uh, Rausch, um, 
which is called uh, the Constitution of Knowledge, a defense of the truth. And just like all knowledge, um, it has to do with uh, a number of people within a uh, knowledge network who are using the same set of um, empirical data, shared facts, in order to um, come up with um, you know, conclusions to support um, that, uh, that to support what they're working on in their common goal. And so what's happening here is, you know, in medicine, the way it works is we all have a shared fundamental understanding of the, of the different, you know, of the sciences of physiology, of um, pharmaceuticals, of, of chemistry, um, of everything that we have learned and studied um, over, you know, the 12 plus years it takes to become a physician. And from that point forward, we build on precedent um, in order to make advances in science so that we can come up with new novel treatments um, that will, um, you know, create things like a cardiac stent when somebody has a heart attack. Um, and so the consensus is driven by an understanding of shared facts and um, the scientific method and that nobody can claim that their facts are right without the ability of somebody else to actually do the experiment on their own and actually come up with the same results, like externally validate that something is true. And so in, in medicine, if say, for example, somebody um, creates some, a, a new drug and then a, uh, another group try and use that drug in a clinical trial and they don't find the same results, then there's no consensus around that. And then this is all also done by the peer review process, which is why we have medical journals. So that um, when people actually put their publications out, they are very rigorous. And the, in order to get something published in one of these um, top medical journals, uh, especially you know, when it comes to research, it has to be done in a very methodical and rigorous way so that everybody can understand uh, how you did what you did so they can go ahead and replicate it on their own. And then we can say, yes, this is helpful. Then we can move, you know, move on in clinical trials, move on into uh, um, actually de deploying this. Um, what has happened during the pandemic is there's been a few um, problems that have led to um, alternative facts. Uh, really what, what is being presented by these, this group of doctors is actually not based on any facts at all or it's based on manipulated facts. Um, the, the problem that we've seen during the pandemic is um, the rise of um, a lot of uh, papers being published on preprint servers, um, which are actually set up in a way to look, they're formatted to look like real um, journal publications. And so we've seen um, false and fabricated data that has been put on preprint servers um, that people then point to as their data, but actually nobody in the scientific community agrees with them. But what they tell their, um, their followers is then that's when they start to use these conspiracy theories. They say, well, don't look at their data, look at our data. They're just doing this because of, um, you know, big pharma 
or they're just doing this because they're part of the deep state. Um, and um, it's been a it's it's been a tremendous problem in the weaponization of information um, by these these doctors who are spreading disinformation um, because it just comes down to a lack of honesty and um, really no desire to be part of the um, reality based community in which you know the vast majority of physicians still live in. Just to add to Nick's point. One of the ways in which we arrive at consensus involves a lot of academic discussion um, and debate and f- to find the closest approximation of that truth um, to decide uh, what is, you know, what is valid, um, what is externally validated, whether the, the, the methods of that study are, are, are appropriate. And what we've seen Part of this is intentional, part of this is not. Um, with the rise of social media, we're seeing a lot of that academic discourse and that questioning happen in public, in the public space, um, which most people are not familiar with. And so that leads them to then have a decreased level of trust in physicians in the scientific process because they think, well, if people are questioning it, then it must be invalid. When in fact, that debate, that discussion that has previously happened within the scientific community at conferences, within medical journals, um, within medical forums or scientific forums um, is happening in the public space. And the public is now seeing all of that discussion um, much for the first time. And that is... creating this level of distrust and uncertainty like who do you trust who do you believe and that's only contributing to the problem and some people including unfortunately physicians are taking advantage of that that division that level of mistrust and driving it further um, for their own uh, to further their own agenda their own gains and so i think that's important to recognize that part of that question exactly of like, how do we arrive at consensus? It does involve discussion. It does involve debate. And that's exactly what has happened throughout the course of these, you know, two and a half years. The thing that I think is important to recognize is that um, scientific consensus is often takes time and the dissemination of new and novel therapies takes time to adopt because people want to see the information. They want to have those discussions. And so it's actually one of the really interesting things is how quickly medical progress is being made by the fact that we're able to have these conversations on a large scale um, and rapidly. And so we're seeing dissemination occur faster, but that does carry problems with it, like the driving of that level of, of mistrust that we're seeing. I think that's a a great point and I mean gets to one of the things that I I think we've seen in terms of public trust in institutions over the last few years you know as a journalist I feel like there's there's been a lot of distrust of journalism in part because as you say people can see the sausage being made um but on the flip side you know you can look at that and say great you can you can see the mechanics you can see how people source information how they put it out there and in a way you know looking at the scientific process happening can uh, encourage trust. But so, so I want to 
get to your recommendations about uh, what we should do to address this problem. You put out a, a report together with the De Beaumont Foundation in December 2021, where you sort of run through the issue of inaction by state medical boards and propose some potential solutions. What do you think should be done? I think um, since that time, we've learned a lot. And <clears throat> the purpose of that report was to um, call to action for the state medical boards to uh, to really uh, enforce the rules um, that they have, because the problem with medical boards um, not enforcing the Medical Practice Act is actually predates the pandemic, you know, for decades. Some of the things that we suggested in that was because the medical boards don't have the ability to um, be looking out or to surveil what's going on um, is to partner with, um, you know, have public private partnerships so they can actually have a level of surveillance for people to input um, things that are out there that are being put out there by licensed physicians that may be causing harm. Um, At this point, however, it's challenging to know that, um, uh, well, I'll say this, in December, the Federation of Aesthetic Medical Boards put out another statement that said that um, they have seen an increase in complaints related to disinformation by two-thirds. Um, we didn't actually know any of the numbers uh, until last week when we found out um, that in Texas, the Texas Medical Board has um, received 1,800 complaints related to COVID-19 vaccine and uh, just COVID disinformation. And that's an extraordinary number to think about, that um, there are are a a large number of some of the most vocal doctors who are disseminating disinformation are licensed in the state of Texas, and nothing has been done about it. They haven't been sanctioned in any way but 1,800 separate complaints have been um, lodged, have been filed against um, presumably many of them. Um, At this point in time, the solution really has to be that these institutions that have the, you know, the finances, the authority and the platform to stand up not only for, uh, you know, the professional practice of medicine, uh, but also to stand up for patients and to stand up for the institutions that are being eroded by this disinformation um, is they, is it's time to act. And we've been calling for them to do their job now for um, like nine months, but we really shouldn't have, neither Taylor nor I intended to do this. This is something that should have happened automatically. Um, but it's, it's far past time for, um, the state medical boards to act. And in addition to that, it's far past time for all the individual, um, organizations within medicine to stand up and take a stance on behalf of science and, um, protecting the institutions again, that are being eroded by this disinformation and it's breeding mistrust. I want to bring up one point about that fact and that we shared in the report with the de Beaumont foundation of December of last year. Um, 
and certainly as Nick said, things have changed, but I imagine um, people still feel this way. There's, there is public um, agreement on that issue of, of holding physicians accountable. Um, and in, in a study, um, doctors who intentionally spread misinformation about COVID, 78% said should receive a warning, 89% said should have to pay a fine, 80% said they should have their license temporarily suspended, and 58% agreed that they should have their licenses permanently revoked. So this is this is a popular idea. This is not like we're going up against a huge um, level of, of disagreement here. Um, I think people also feel that this needs to happen, um, that the spreading of misinformation, particularly intentionally spreading misinformation by physicians is problematic. And so we have generally public consensus that some level of account needs to be held by these medical boards. I guess the saying is true that everything really is bigger in Texas. Um, and I think that that sort of quite extraordinary stat that you shared highlights another dynamic here, which is, you know, the, the regional differences and a particularly concerning development that has involved Republican controlled state legislatures, um, you know, using their powers to constrain the power of state medical boards to discipline doctors. Uh, an example, uh, the, the most extreme example perhaps is in Tennessee, where the Tennessee State Medical Board uh, had adopted the F FSMB statement only to be bullied by the legislature into taking the statement down. And so I'm curious how much that that dynamic and that inhospitable climate in various states where this is all so politicized um, might be affecting state medical board decision-making. Um, that is a tremendous problem. And it actually gets to the root of the problem. Um, you know, not only has there been legislative interference in the medical boards in Tennessee, um, that has also been passed in South Dakota and Missouri. There's actually 72 bills in 31 states that do one of three things. The first is it limits the ability of the state medical board to discipline doctors for spreading COVID-19 disinformation or misinformation, which um, obviously goes, the purpose of it is to immediately go against the statement that was put out by the Federation of State Medical Boards. The second type of uh, legislation is it prevents the state medical boards from disciplining doctors for prescribing um, off-label ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine um, if they do so um, without a good clinical indication, i.e. for uh, the treatment of COVID-19. And then the very last one, which is already law in Tennessee, is um, they've made ivermectin over-the-counter. It's no longer a prescription drug. And... If you look into this, what you'll find is that three of the doctors who are um, uh, three of the leading doctors who are spreading disinformation um, actually were invited by the uh, one of the senators, the state senators in uh, Tennessee to come give a talk about um, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and about COVID, their views on COVID. And. Uh, this was reported in one of the Tennessee um, local newspapers. Um, and so what, what we're seeing is um, really what we've come to call the disinformation pipeline. And what that consists of is licensed physicians 
um, who have the same credentials as Taylor and myself and, you know, the billion other practicing licensed physicians in the United States who are giving legitimacy to disinformation. And then when they speak with um, lawmakers, then the lawmakers are institutionalizing this disinformation. And so not only are we seeing this at the state, uh, the state level, um, but we're seeing it in various ways, like um, with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who held a roundtable with um, a number of doctors who appear again and again and are the largest purveyors of disinformation who are then um, giving, you know, legitimacy to disinformation. So then he can, you know, uh, have his um, uh, as surgeon general say that children shouldn't get vaccinated when the science shows that it is beneficial uh, for children to get vaccinated. Uh, children who are five and under, but there's at least 1,500 children in the United States who have died from COVID. Um and so this interference that's occurring that is politically driven, politically motivated, um, is a tremendous problem and needs to be addressed outright. And one of the things, one of the problems with that pipeline is, as Nick said, it's legitimizing misinformation and then driving policy. Um, but that policy isn't based on what Nick was talking about before of, you know, a, a community consensus on what is rational, what is fact. Um, they're in fact trying specifically to create an alternative set of facts. Um, they're trying to create sort of uh, a, a world in which disinformation is the predominant narrative. Um, so I, I've called this the the laundering of misinformation. They're using legitimized sources, people who still have a medical license, who are who are political actors, trying to to um, leverage their credentials to legitimize the information so that they can institute it as policy. So that's part of this pipeline, and we've seen it with COVID. We've seen it with many other issues. Has been a common tactic of. Um, those who want to believe in um, these alternative sets of, of realities, of conspiracy theories. We've seen it within the anti-vax movement. We've seen it within the anti-abortion movement. Um, this, this issue is legitimate, um, a legitimate problem, and it will only be solved when you take those credentials that are being used to launder that misinformation away. So I want to talk about the issue of timing. Um, you in your your report, you identified the the problem of the speed with which complaints are investigated as really a, a key issue, which seems just obviously true. I mean, a, a false claim about vaccines can rocket around the internet in just a few minutes and go viral in just a day, but it can take a state medical board months, even years, to investigate a complaint and decide what to do. And so it does seem like you know the the uh, snail's pace at which some of these boards are working is potentially a problem. On the other hand, I, I kind of wonder, you know, how much can that process be sped up and to what extent uh, will it be able to, you know, match speeds with the speed of information? Because it, it can just take, you know, a second to post a, a misleading tweet, but it takes time to investigate allegations. There are certain requirements of due process. Is discipline ever going to be able to catch up to misinformation? 
I think, um, I, so <clears throat> I think there's something very clear that could be done immediately. And this is, um, something that, um, I've raised a number of times, um, is because people, when we have these discussions about academic debate is I'm the first person to say that <laughs> we are in no way trying to stifle academic debate. Um, the biggest, uh, advances in science have come from people who have questioned dogma and that is critically important and we we, we always want to encourage people to think outside the box because uh, those those that those are the most brilliant people that we've seen um, in history come up with the biggest advances but the things that we're seeing right now like the blatantly false um, uh, verifiably false things like physicians claiming that the vaccines are killing more people than COVID um, or, or something that we've seen also recently that became an issue uh, where they're calling, they're saying the vaccines cause AIDS. Um, these things are verifiably false. It does not take time to have academic debate around them. And there are a number of physicians who have been saying these very absolutely verifiably false things that will never be true that the medical boards could have and should be acting on immediately, um, at least with an interim suspension um, so that they can, I guess, if they need to investigate whether or not the vaccines have microchips in them, then fine. But uh, they, the thing is, is they're not doing it. Um, and as much as we've been, you know, we come to this as we want to be allies to the medical boards. We want to help provide them with the information that they need to, to get there. But, um, you, I've, I've talked with the California medical board a number of times and, um, still nothing has changed. Um, and you know, it's, if you look at the data from the last year, um, you'll see that the average, the mean and median time from, um, complaints to actual, um, any action taken is, is over three years. And so in the setting of a, uh, very dangerous pandemic, um, that's being weaponized and politicized, um, and is causing, um, you know, real violence against, um, you know, public health workers, um, and violence in hospitals. Um, and unnecessary death, I feel like it's incumbent upon them to act upon this um, verifiably false information that could be done, in my opinion, uh, right now. I do, do, should they get due process? Yes, everybody in America deserves due process. But um, these are things that um, is occurring amongst actually a very few number of doctors um, that they should and they could and should take care of um, immediately. I think Nick makes an important point here that, that we know that it takes a long time to collect information and for due process. And neither of us, none of us involved in this would ever suggest that people don't deserve due process. Certainly everyone does. Um, but I think Nick raises an important point in that we know that the average length of time um, from investigation to discipline can take up to an average of three years. And that, you know, this pandemic hasn't even been going on for three years yet. And so it's not rapid enough to address the issues that are, that are pressing right now. Um, this is the weaponization of what, what is commonly referred to as Brandolini's principle that the, 
effort required to debunk disinformation or misinformation is uh, an order of magnitude greater than that which is required to create it. So they're, they're spreading disinformation knowing that even if they were to get disciplined, the time that it would take would be so long that it's not useful anymore to just discipline them right away. Um, uh, so this, what is, you know, what is otherwise referred to as the bullshit asymmetry principle, like this is asymmetric, um, warfare essentially of information. And as Nick mentioned, medical boards do have the ability to suspend physicians and not just take their license away. They have multiple mechanisms by which they can hold physicians accountable. And if they truly needed the time to investigate somebody, that is that is spreading problematic information. They can suspend their license, um, but like Nick said, so much of this is verifiably false, and I think that's important to emphasize. Is that I think some people, when they hear that the idea is to try and hold physicians accountable for even speech, they have they struggle with that idea because of this, you know, First Amendment principle that you know that that they have free speech, but again, free speech di being different than professional speech, um, regardless of that fact, we know that in the medical practice act, it says that if they're spreading, if they're lying, particularly if they're lying and that is causing harm to patients, that they should be held accountable for that. And they can be held accountable for that. And so if, if a medical board can verify easily, let's say the vaccines cause AIDS, they know that that's not true. They can discipline them immediately, even if they want to just suspend their license to say, okay, what else is this person doing that is problematic? Do they just need re-education? Do they need to um, you know, under, undergo further investigation before they take further action, for example? Um, but they, they, they can act on those sorts of verifiably false statements immediately. Yeah, and I want to highlight um, a, a very significant example of this that happened very recently. Um, there is um, a group of physicians, uh, one of the main four groups of physicians who do uh, who spread uh, the most uh, disinformation called America's Frontline Doctors. And um, they put out a... Um, report like a video, a very well-produced video of one of their uh, 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 speakers talking about vaccines causing AIDS and they, they call it VADES. What is VADES, V-A-I-D-S? And um, that moved on to the point where another member of that group, um, one of the lawyers, um, was seen asking one of our U.S. senators, Ron Johnson, whether or not um, he believed that vaccines caused AIDS and whether or not we can move on to disciplining doctors like Taylor, myself, um, and all the other um, people who have been, all the other healthcare workers who have been on the front lines over these past months, um, taking care of COVID patients held accountable for, um, for giving patients AIDS with vaccines. And the answer was chilling because uh, what Senator Ron Johnson said was, uh, it may be true that the vaccines cause AIDS, but 
right now, the narrative is that the vaccines are good and everybody likes them. So until we can change the narrative, um, we can't move on to things like accountability. And what's ex what's especially concerning to, uh, about that to me is in this alternative reality, um, you know, in line with the uh, the big lie of um, Jane, of uh, the the election being stolen is this is all about creating a separate reality. So you note that Senator Ron Johnson didn't say, well, the science says, you know, th th nothing about the science says that the vaccines cause AIDS. He's talking about public perception. And so the intent, just like with the big lie, is to convince enough people through coercion and through disinformation and mass media and social media uh, that maybe the vaccines do cause AIDS. And maybe uh, we have been harming people on purpose. Um, and as they have uh, combined with the anti-vax uh, networks, the biggest anti-vaxxers in the, in the country, uh, this becomes more and more dangerous. And so this becomes more and more of a pressing issue for us um, as we see this, because not as many people are paying attention to this as we believe should be. Let's leave it there. Nick and Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, as well as our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast was edited by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our audio engineer was Goat Rodeo's Jay Venables. And our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>